0: This morning, we begin to look at the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount from our Gospel lesson. So the text is Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. In the sermon, Jesus has already cut deep down into the recesses of our souls, into the secret wellspring of our lives, our moral lives, for our lives are always morally fraught lives. And these great moral issues are being wrought deep down in the secret places of the human person. And to this point, Jesus has already said no to anger, no to lust, no to divorce, no to anxiety, no to treasures on earth, no to hatred, no to cursing, no to physical or verbal retaliation, no to lawsuits, no to the resistance of evil. And then today... No to judgment. He's relentless because he seeks our transformation. Much more than we seek it, actually. He seeks our being conformed to the splendor of his own image, and that requires surgery. (laughs) As Isaiah says, I strike to heal. So the summons of the gospel is to nothing less, Jesus has already told us, than the perfection of our Heavenly Father manifested in the Son. Which, of course, for us, means going the way of the Son in the way of the cross. So, you know, to this point, any sober listener to the Sermon on the Mount Should not feel much like judging others. You would think maybe this little chunk of text here would be superfluous. Like, come on, Jesus, no one is going to be in a mood to be judging others after all that you've said to this point. Right? The gap, the gap between our own lives and the summons of Jesus should shatter us. But still, somehow, we manage to carry on with our anger, and our hatred, and our finger-pointing, and our condescension, and our demonizations. And Jesus knows this. And remember, Jesus has already addressed the fact that it's piety itself. It's fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. It's these very things which become the ground for self-righteousness and hypocrisy. So it should come really as no surprise that the very demands for righteousness placed on us in the Sermon on the Mount can and do often lead to a judgmental spirit. Because how does this, what's the dynamic at work here? Well, it's something like this. right? We hear the call to holiness. We respond to it with utmost seriousness, hopefully. And by God's grace we make some progress. And often that progress comes at excruciating cost. And then we begin to compare. We begin to look down our noses to wonder about those others. Those nominal, those not so committed compromised Christians. So it turns out that Human nature being the treacherous thing it is, whether you're hardened to the message on the Sermon on the Mount, kind of keeping it at arm's length, or whether you heed the message of the Sermon on the Mount, and you take it to heart. In either case, in either case, both cases, the temptation to become a judge lurks right at the door. And Jesus knows that. And thus, at this late date in the sermon. He gives us this injunction. And so we'll make the three points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. Judging others, correcting brothers, and sharing with the hostile. So first, judging others. This text is famous text, often misused, often cited out of context. Judge not that you be not judged. So to start, let's say with this judging is not. It's clear from the context, not to mention the whole of of the Bible, the whole of Scripture, that this can't mean what Tolstoy thought it meant. It can't mean that we cannot set up law courts to judge. Societies need laws, and they need judges. And Scripture not only acknowledges this, It, it views these things as divinely appointed. So it can't mean that. But second... Judging cannot mean that we're to be blind, that we're to cease judging in the sense of discerning good and evil, in the sense of rightly discriminating or evaluating. If you're about my age, you remember a very famous uh, talk show host from the 80s and 90s, television talk show host. And any time... Anyone on his show made a moral evaluation, particularly a sexual moral evaluation about behavior that they thought was inappropriate or wrong. He would say, but the Bible says, don't judge lest you be judged. It's like, it's like the only verse he knew. It's the, it's the favorite verse of our culture in many ways. Right. And no one ever stops to say, well, this certainly does not mean that we can't, we have to cease from discerning good from evil. We have to cease from being critical or evaluating moral choices? Of course not. Jesus judges a certain type of person in verse 6 of our text. And a few verses later, he passes a scathing judgment on false prophets. And later, he pronounces a series of woes on the Pharisees. He tells the disciples how to judge in the exercise of church discipline. He says we can judge people by their fruit. In John's gospel, chapter 7, he says you are to judge righteously. The text here itself is a judgment against those who judge. Even refraining from judgment is a form of discriminating judgment. So in this wholesome sense, and again, by the wholesome sense, I mean critical evaluation, discernment. In, the whole, in this wholesome sense, judgment is an inescapable reality. So judgment is good. It's even commanded. So what's in view here? What's Jesus going after? He's going after a perverted And a diseased form of judgment. One which unfairly and unrighteously and hypocritically judges others. And so the text here, in it, our Lord is seeking to eliminate a harsh, fault-finding, critical spirit, which is quick to condemn others. The kind of spirit which actively seeks or loves to expose the failures of other people or the kind of spirit which which often puts the worst possible construction on the actions and the motives of other people. Again, it's not evaluating or discerning which is the issue. It's evaluating without generosity. It's engaging others in a way that is contrary to the law of love. And this is a pervasive problem with us, is it not? In particular, this type of person likes to play the judge. They like to pronounce upon the guilt of other people. So they're assuming a kind of competence and an authority that they do not have. They assume a posture of condemnation. And th- This aspect of condemning is critical here it's brought out in the parallel in Luke chapter 6 where there Jesus says this do not judge and you will not be judged do not condemn and you will not be condemned so the person here is actually assuming the role of god they want to climb up onto the bench forgetting and we always do this that we ourselves are in the dock Such a one as this, the text says, will be judged. And it's implied judged by God. Because it's dangerous to assume this posture. This perverse form of judgment. The Lord's brother, who shares so much of Jesus' moral teaching ethos, James, says this in his epistle. There is only one lawgiver and judge. Just, just stop right there. There's not two. There's not three. And there's not a couple hundred million. There's one lawgiver and there's one judge. And this one, James says, is the one, the singular unique one who's able to save and to destroy. But you, James goes on, but you, who are you to judge your brother? Right. That's the question this text puts. us. Who are you anyway? We heard heard Paul in uh, Romans 14 in the New Testament lesson. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? There's the the attitude of contempt. There's a certain contemptuousness that this person has, either for for other Christian people. And then the apostle goes on in the Romans reading and says, we're all going to stand before God's judgment seat. So let me clarify the picture for you, right? You're going to be before the judge. You're not going to be the judge. And so there's a certain impatience in people who feel the need to take up this role of judge. They don't trust in the coming eschatological judgment. We are not in the time when judgment unto condemnation or where judgment that is final is being meted out. Therefore, we must not assume the bench. This is why Paul can say, listen to these words of Paul. This is 1 Corinthians 4. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will then bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. But there's no form of judgment before the Lord's appearance that can bring to light the secret things hidden in darkness. And expose the purposes of the human heart. Then Paul goes on and says, Then each one will receive his commendation from God. There's a certain suspension, right, of the finality of judgment that goes along with the time we're in. Then each one will receive commendation. So judgment, in the sense of some kind of definitive verdict over lives, that lies in the future. So we should stop grasping for it now. When you look at any given person, right, we ought to have a keen sense of it's not over with that person till it's over. This isn't the final state. The cement is not hardened, including our enemies, including ourselves. And this means when we speak about people, when we render evaluations, if you will, judgments, we have to do it in a chastened, humbled, sense where we realize all of our evaluations are partial and we see through a glass darkly, we don't even know ourselves exhaustively much less the person we're talking about. So verse 2 expands on the judgment. The judgment that those who judge this way will receive. For with the judgment you pronounce, Jesus says, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So the point is here that God will deal with this sort of judging person who wants justice for others. Everybody loves to see justice done on somebody else. This type of person should not expect mercy at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the sobriety of this text. Notice there's a kind of like Symmetry here, reciprocity, by which God will deal with us in the same way we've treated others. This does not mean, by the way, that if like you just uh, are cool with all the sins of other people, God will be cool with all your sins. That would be an absurd reading of the text. It means that if we live by the grace of the gospel... Now, get this. If you live by the grace of the gospel, you'll be judged by that same generous standard. If we refuse to forgive others, if we're narrow and critical of others, our Heavenly Father will not forgive us. Jesus has already told us this. And this is the the essence of the problem in the parable of the unfaithful servant. His condemnation stems from the fact that he had received mercy and just refuses to show that same mercy to his fellow servant. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. So again, what's lost on us when we take this seat, this posture, is that we are the objects of God's evaluation. And that evaluation will be most gracious to those Have shown mercy. Having shown mercy, you shall receive mercy. So that's judging others. The second point is correcting others or correcting brothers. Here here we get something of a short parable. And Jesus is just using this little parable to illustrate the point he just made about judging. So he says here, this is verse 3 Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the log or the plank? In your own eye. So it turns out the one judging in this sense is not really concerned for their brother. Right? In fact, often there's a, a, um, a masked kind of contempt that they have. Under the mask of love, right? I'm just trying to help you, brother. Right? Under the mask of love, often there lies either a pettiness or especially a complete lack of proportion. We talk a lot about order and proportion here. That's the issue in that parable of the unfaithful servant. He has no sense of the vastness of the mercy he's seen and the smallness of the sins of the other people against him. So his whole sense of proportion is wrong. And proportion in life and in responding to other people is so important. Really, it's crucial. So this person that Jesus is addressing... Sees the small sins of other people as very much in need of correction. I can't let that slide. Right? There's a, there's a, a sense here in which this person doesn't have any pyramid of values. Very much in need of correction, but they're totally blind to their own much greater sins. They exaggerate the failures of others. They minimize their own. That's the purpose of the parallel. They're operating with a hypocritical double standard. Justice for the other, justice for you, promiscuous mercy for me. This, beloved, is a monstrous malformity of soul with which we are all afflicted to one degree or another. This type of person sits in the sermon and thinks so-and-so really needs to hear this sermon. I really wish so-and-so was here today. Right? And so under the hypocrisy, there lies this complete or nearly complete lack of self-awareness. Right? That's the point of the parable. There's a monstrous lack of self-awareness here. We can walk around with planks in our eyes, Jesus says, and insist that we be the eye surgeons for our brethren. One remembers the Old Testament lesson here. David's response to the parable Nathan tells him, after his adultery and murder, where the man steals one little lamb, and David, plank in eye pronounces the death sentence on the guy. And of course, Nathan replies, you are the man. It's a complete lack of being formed in the right way in the soul of David. So Jesus continues, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a plank or a log in your own eye? So again, there's this lack of self-evaluation. Blinded surgeons should not be eager to operate. But we are. So part of the remedy here is robust self-awareness. But robust self-awareness is very painful. Right? We, we don't take criticism well, most of us. And it's very hard to obtain it. The eye, after all, cannot see the eye. And we are really bad at seeing ourselves in full. In fact, we don't really even want to see ourselves in full, most of us. We're not interested in it. We're not gazing into the mirror of the word, trying to see our soul reflected there. So this is why, unless we're under the word, not over it as a judge, but under it, allowing it to criticize us, and to undo us, and to operate on us, to pierce to the division of joint and marrow, to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Are you allowing Scripture to do that to you, to judge the thoughts and the intentions of your heart? Unless we're in that state, we are unfit to correct others. And the sacrament of the table is given as well, Paul says, that we might judge ourselves correctly there, that we might not be condemned with the world. Both the word and the sacrament are to help us get the log out of our eyes. And historically, because this is such a difficult thing for us, historically the church has had spiritual directors, right? In many Christian traditions, you have a spiritual director, or you have an office or an ordinance of confession. The Reformers did not depart from this. They changed it somewhat, but they didn't depart from it. They knew that you need a spiritual guide. You need someone to stand over against you to say, hey, brother, you can't do that, or that's disordered. But a person as the person in this text they're not rigorously judging themselves, either by the word, or by the table, or with the spiritual director. They're too busy pointing at everybody else's failures. And of such a person, Jesus says in verse 5, You hypocrite. There's a deep hypocrisy here. Hypocrite here means you're a mask wearer. You hide yourself even from yourself. First, he says... Take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice this. Judgment here is not forbidden. I mean, Jesus doesn't say, don't you ever try to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He says, take the plank out of your eye, and then you can deal with your brother's speck. But this kind of judgment is not fault-finding, arrogant judgment. At this point now this is brotherly correction the correction of one who's dealt robustly with their own sins first only then Jesus says only then and then with a deep solidarity in our common frailty right this is what's missing from so much of our correction right there's no sense of a deep solidarity in our common frailty with the sense that we are the chief of sinners with fear and with trembling, then we will have the clarity of eye necessary to address our brothers' and sisters' specs. Then we correct, Chrysostom says, not as a foe or as an adversary exacting a penalty, but as a physician providing medicine. So this is a different kind of correction, right? Right? It's spoken of by Paul. He outlines it in Galatians 6. He says this there. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So notice this about true correction. It's brotherly, It's sympathetic, it's gentle, it's aware of its own weakness and frailty, and it's costly. It's willing to carry the load of the other's struggle. That's why Paul says you can correct this other person gently, but be ready to carry their load, their burden. So this kind of correction is willing to work with the other person, sit with the other person, listen to the other person, understand the other person, weep with the other person. It's willing to take the long road of restoration, not merely issue edicts, even if they're biblical edicts. This is brotherly love. And it requires this rare combination of deep self-awareness and brokenness and genuine, unselfish charity. Both of which are lacking in the moral hall monitors of the church. Right? The church has hall monitors, moral hall monitors, who go around correcting and pronouncing and declaring. These types lack this deep brokenness and this genuine, unselfish concern for others. And until we obtain this, Jesus says, until you come to the, then you will see clearly, in verse 5, we should refrain from assuming the role of the corrector of others. There's a time to correct others, but there's a deep spiritual discipline and cleansing in us that has to happen before we do it. And the third point here, then, is sharing with the hostile. It's been noted that this is a strange verse, verse 6. People question how it fits into the sermon, how it connects to the material before it. The idea, I think, is that in our love, and our generosity toward others, because right, Jesus has just reset our disposition toward other people. I hope we've gotten that. right. He's just reset our eagerness to correct. And in your generosity, he says, you must still be discerning. You must still be discerning. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. And what is sacred, what is holy, as the rest of the Gospel of Matthew indicates, is the Gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom itself is the pearl of great price. And so when Jesus speaks of dogs, he doesn't mean you know, domestic household pets. He means ferocious scavengers. Dogs and pigs are both unclean animals, and calling someone a dog or a pig was a common insult. Here, Jesus is using them as images For those who are hardened. Those who are, if you will, committed to their own filth. Those who are animalistic in nature. Those who are fixed in their hostility to the gospel. Peter uses this in 2 Peter where he says a dog returns to his vomit. And a sow that is washed returns to wallowing in the mud. Their nature is unchanged. So this verse then says that there are people like this in the world whom you must not share the gospel with. To do so is to essentially invite contempt and blasphemy. Proverbs 23 says, Do not speak to a fool, for he will scorn the wisdom of your words. So there's a kind of evangelical spirit, often somewhat aggressive there's an ethos, maybe not so much today as there has been in past decades, but there's an ethos which likes to count numbers and count the number of converts they make. But you know what's never counted? The number of people we've turned off. Like, no one has that statistic. But I can assure you, it's legion. It seems to me that one out of every two people I meet has some story of some person in some church somewhere who was a jerk and has turned them off to the gospel. We don't count that, or we don't count the number of times that we've allowed the holy things of God to be profaned and despised and trampled under the feet of the hostile in the language of the text. Because we just tend to throw this stuff around indiscriminately. Nor can we measure the hostility, the backlash against believers, when those who are vicious may, the text concludes, turn on you. And tear you to pieces. Notice Jesus says, look, if you, sh- if you do, if you're undiscerning toward this type of person, you can expect backlash. Now, this, of course, does not mean that we don't vigorously preach the gospel. We do. The whole New Testament tells us to. Proclaiming the gospel to every creature under heaven, that's the default setting of the church. But the text does mean with some people, we know when to stop or we know to refrain. Spurgeon has a wonderful little quip here. He says, We are not to be judges, but we are also not to be simpletons. We're not to be judges, but we're also not to be simpletons. Because we're non judgmental does not mean we're not discriminating. And you can see this kind of discrimination in the New Testament. Paul practices it on numerous occasions where he finds the Jews resisting the gospel. And he says, because you're resisting the gospel, I'm going to take it to the Gentiles. Jesus tells his own disciples, his own missionary disciples, shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next town if this town won't receive you. He doesn't say, why don't you stay there for a really long time and just keep sharing it over and over and over and over with these people. Shake the dust off your feet, move on. This is hard for some. It is hard. But we must learn to let the rejected word be rejected. The rejection of the word is the form that Jesus took during his earthly ministry. We cannot coerce others, we can't manipulate them for something that has, in our own case, been freely given to us. Another way to put this, Jesus is saying, don't try to be the Holy Spirit. That can seem noble, but it will lead to the truth being profaned and to the hardened being confirmed in their hardness. Augustine has this exquisite piece of advice on this text. I love this citation from him. He says, Better to leave one to search for what is concealed than to make them despise what is revealed. There's a, right there, I I mean, I sometimes think a lot of Christian art and music has made the culture despise what is revealed. Um, there's There's a sense in which you want the person or the culture to sense the mystery and the grandeur and the elusiveness and the glory of the thing. And you, can't, you, can, you can press in such a way that, that all you end up doing is making them despise what is revealed. So again, here, listen to Augustine. Better to leave one to search for what is concealed. Better to whet their appetite, if you will. Make them come and ask you questions than to make them despise what is revealed. So, the whole passage here calls us to give up assuming the bench, the role of the judge. It calls us to forsake hypocrisy. And it calls us to forsake ignorance of our own state. To forsake, then, perverse, disease judgment. Jesus seeks repentant, gentle, Merciful evaluators and helpers of us and our fellow sinners in the body of Christ. That's what the church needs. He seeks people who would have the courage to pray, Judge me, O God, as I have judged others. Can can you pray that? That's what you want to be able to say Judge me, O God in the same way and with the same measure and in the same manner that I have judged others. And as those who have chosen this way, the text calls us to share the holy gospel, the treasure of the gospel, with discernment. Right? And what does discernment mean? It means we know now that the one who alone is judge, who alone acquits and condemns, the one who takes the plank out of our eyes, that one alone can open the eyes of the hostile to see clearly the glory of the pearl of great price. Amen. Amen.